welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about Iran's presidential elections on June 18th and the significance of this election. We also talk about the voter frustration and apathy and the lack of enthusiasm for this election. We discuss the chances of moderate candidate Abdel Nasser Hemati. We also talk about the hardline favorite Ibrahim Raisi and why he should thank Donald Trump if he wins the election. My guest today is Ruzbe Parsi, head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. He's also the director of the European Middle East Research Group. Ruzbe, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. Um, Let's first talk about the significance of this presidential election. It's the turn of the presidency, basically, after Hassan Rouhani's second term. Iran is going to have a new president, potentially for the next four and most likely eight years. And there's also, there could be connections between this change of presidency to the succession and the next supreme leader, especially with the special candidate that's running the hardliner, Ibrahim Raisi. Talk about the significance of this election and how the result can shape Iran's near and long-term future. Well, I mean, to some degree, it's it's very much domestic politics and it's about how the conservatives, which is a very broad tent, uh, has moved its positions forward into what used to be an area where the reformists could at least have a, some chance, which are the elected elements of the system. But it's also about what the future of Iran is going to be, because it seems at least that we're going to get back to the JCPOA. And so the question is, how is potentially a better economic situation uh, going to influence uh, what Iran is going to look like in the foreseeable future? And as you mentioned yourself, in extension, this is also positioning yourself to some degree, for the election of the next supreme leader, which will have effects and ripple effects for decades to come. And um, let's also talk about the implications. You mentioned the JCPOA. We know the discussions are happening in Vienna right now, and there's hope that a return, a full return to the JCPOA would be happening sometime soon. But we also know that Joe Biden has ambitions for, and he's mentioned, negotiations beyond just a nuclear issue about Iran's missile program, Iran's regional policy, even domestic issues and human rights. If a hardliner like Ibrahim Raisi wins the election, how much hope do you have that anything beyond the JCPOA would be on the, table, on the table for negotiations and a potential agreement? Well, I think you can think of it uh, in in this way. I mean, there is a baseline for Iranian foreign policy, which doesn't change that much, irrespective of president, because it's a consensus-based decision on whatever the topic is that goes into the core of the system. So it's not something that one single individual or an administration can change. But then the different presidents can have, they can change the atmosphere and they can uh, modulate this baseline. And a conservative president, the hardline in like Raisi, would first of all, on the one hand, be less pedagogical, perhaps less suave and less convincing in his talks with outside con- uh, actors. Uh, on the other hand, some argue that the conservatives would then basically have unified the decision-making process in Iran because they hold all the levers of power. Uh, and so therefore, whatever they decide uh, con- uh, collectively will have a greater weight and better stability. I don't think that extra 
gain, so to speak, is worth the trouble uh, because I think, as I said, that there is a baseline that they all stick to either way. So, for instance, I don't think no matter who becomes president, they're going to negotiate away their missile systems. They might curb the the reach of those missiles. Uh, the Supreme Leader has already hinted at that several times and uh, unofficially they've stuck to a certain limit. Uh, and maybe it would be easier to actually formalize that kind of decision uh, with, or at least negotiate on that with someone who is not a hardliner. But maybe then it would be quicker for the Iranian side to reach that formal solution if there is a hardliner president. So there are arguments for both sides in that sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm skeptical of that uh, argument as well, because I remember very similar arguments were made um, around 2004, 2005, when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was about to become president. And we saw not so much of that happening. Basically, when a hardliner became president, we started to actually see more visible divisions within the hardline camp and um, not much of a cohesion, as it was argued before his presidency. Um, I also want to talk about a piece you had this week in the Responsible Statecraft with Trita Parsi. It's titled, Why Iran's Next Hardline President Should Thank Donald Trump. Um, assuming that Ibrahim Raisi will win this election, although we're not sure because everything can change until the last moment. So we're watching the election very carefully. But you argue that maximum pressure, Trump's policy towards Iran, which was coined as maximum pressure, has undermined centrists and reformers in Iran and set up a rigged election with an increasingly certain outcome, which would be to the favor of Ibrahim Raisi. Um, talk about this and why you think Donald Trump, who's no longer president here in the U.S., looms large over Iran's presidential elections. Sure, but let me perhaps just uh, connect to what you said uh, just before you asked the question. Mm -hmm. I think there is one element that we sometimes tend to forget when we're analyzing Iran, and that is that this is politics like anywhere else, which mm -hmm. means that when you get a new president, let's say Raisi becomes president, he has a pie that he has to slice and dice because different groups have helped him get there. So it could as much be about internal politicking, for instance, who ends up being his foreign minister. It might not have to do that much with whether he is good at it, whether he's acceptable to the outside, as much as he has to do with backroom deals within the conservative tent, so to speak. And that will influence what is possible and what is not possible as much as anything else. So it's not necessarily always about ideology even. It's more about these backroom deals that you will find in any political system. Mm -hmm. But now to your question. I think uh, what we were trying to do, Treat and I, was to point out that in a sense, what the reformists and others have been arguing for decades, that you could make a deal with the West and particularly with the United States and that they, that is the Americans, would stick to that deal so you can trust that working, even if it is a very minimalist agreement, which in this case is just about making sure Iran doesn't get nuclear weapons. Uh, that very principal idea that they've been arguing about for, for decades, now they got the shot to actually try it out to its fullest extent. And they succeeded in getting the deal. The problem was, of course, that the Americans ended up being exactly as bad as the Supreme Leader and the hardliners have been arguing all the time, which is that they're not trustworthy. Now, you could argue, of course, that Trump is an anomaly. I don't think he's that much of an anomaly, but that in any case, he came as a very much surprised candidate, won the presidency, and basically wrecked a lot of things in American foreign policy, and this one 
included. And that means that this is something that the hardliners will always be able to go back to as the one singular proof that their contentions about the US are true. Now, we can obviously claim that that's one singular a case, so it's maybe more an exception than a rule, but they will always argue that it is the rule. And so far, uh, they have a lot to go on. Mm-hmm. And in your piece, you also um, quote an Iranian economist, Heidi Kalzadeh, who explained before that Trump's maximum pressure campaign altered the social class structure of Iran by moving a significant portion of the middle class to the poverty level. And that has also had implications on um, on this political scene that we're witnessing. And I want to talk about a specific um, aspect of what we're witnessing among the voters, this sense of frustration, this apathy or hopelessness in the entire system for some. In the Guardian Council's unprecedented mass disqualification of candidates. I mean, the elections in Iran have never been free or completely fair, but they've been competitive. But this time around, the disqualification of candidates really shocked even some of the people who have been working in this system. We saw someone like Ali Larijani, a former speaker of the parliament, an advisor to the supreme leader even, being disqualified, who's not even a reformer in Iran's political structure, more of a centrist. So that shock has, in a way, um, it, we can witness it even among various political factions like the reformists who've been trying to work within this um, not-so-ideal system. So we see this sense of a lack of enthusiasm in the election. Some are outright boycotting it, some even encouraging everyone else to boycott the election, and some are just... Um, saying they won't participate or that they don't have a candidate. Talk about this dynamic a little bit and and how you see it playing out in this specific election. Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, we have almost a kind of a serialized shock at just how brazen the Guardian Council can be, because this is not the first time they mass disqualify people. But what I found particularly interesting was, A, that the Supreme Leader's own admonition to try and at least half-heartedly say that Ali Larjani, for instance, should be put back into the into the contest, fell on deaf ears in the Guardian Council. And the fact, even more importantly, that the Guardian Council claims now that it can continue to monitor even the candidates they themselves have qualified. So if they kind of move in any way in a direction that the Guardian Council doesn't like during the campaigning, they can then post hoc afterwards, in hindsight, disqualify them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in that sense, the Guardian Council is becoming a kind of a constitutional blob that's just eating up more and more powers of purview over the system in a way that it seems not even the Supreme Leader himself is willing to to kind of confront and tackle. But the net effect of all of this, of course, is that we end up in the same situation as we have before uh, in other elections in Iran, which is this kind of existential angst over should one participate and what does one subscribe to or inadvertently, in a sense, support by simply participating in the electoral process because of all the deficiencies of that process. And so on the one hand, you can say, yes, it would feel better, in a sense, in this desperate hour to simply boycott the whole thing, the whole circus, and in a sense, reject it. The problem, of course, is that you can do that, but you're not going to end up living somewhere else than Iran. You're still stuck in the same Iran that now 
more easily will be controlled and run by the conservatives who will more easily win the election. On the other hand, if you participate, as I said, you're maybe subscribing to, whether you want it or not, to an idea and a worldview that the system claims that your vote represents. Even though you're just basically trying to prevent the, if you will, the worst imaginable conservative candidate from becoming president. So it's it's a very difficult situation. Uh, it's a minefield to navigate. And then on top of that, you also have to add powers outside of Iran, especially within the Iranian diaspora, uh, who are uh, more of the regime change uh, belong to the regime change camp who are also very severely criticizing anyone uh, who wants to participate in the electoral process, which makes it even more difficult to kind of argue or at least survive, if you will, discourse-wise, arguing that it's still worthwhile trying to participate, if only in order to prevent the worst candidate from winning. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, um, some of the calls from the diaspora have also included naming people who've been supportive of participating in the election. There are also calls for showing up to the polling stations and taking photos or videos of people who are waiting in line to go and vote and to later name and shame them, which have become um, sort of an intimidation tactic for um, against people who still view participation as the path forward to make some change within the system. Um, you also uh, mentioned, this is in your piece, and we've been witnessing in the past few days that Abdul Nasser Hamati, the former head of Iran's central bank, the banker, the technocrat moderate in the election, is picking up some um, steam, and it's not unlikely that he may be an actual contender for Ibrahim Raisi, the shoeing candidate. And we just saw Mohsen Mehrayuzadeh, the other reformists, drop out of the race. So now it's Hemati, his camp, hoping to consolidate the reformist moderate vote, whoever from that camp is going to vote, and basically have a chance against the other remaining four candidates from the hardline camp. Talk about Hemati, what you think his chances are and how his potential presidency, his win, could change this equation and the dynamic moving forward. Well, yeah, I mean, first, just to kind of react to this whole pressure from the outside. I mean, I find it kind of bizarre and paradoxical to see these groups who claim they want a democratic Iran harassing people who want to participate in the electoral process. It, mm. it says a lot about the double standards that they apply. So I think that's, you know, I wouldn't put place too much hope in them being a force for any kind of democratization in Iran. Um, but leaving that aside, yes, I think Hemati, in a sense, uh, he is like many other before him, a kind of an empty canvas that everyone projects their hopes on. The difference between him and Mir Hossein Musavi, for instance, in 2009, is that Musavi had a much clearer political track record, even though I'd been out of politics for two decades, um, which made him easier uh, to to believe being such a strong candidate that it would be worthwhile projecting your hopes on him and then going to vote for him. With Hemati, it's a bit more ambiguous, exactly because as a technocrat, he hasn't really, uh, he doesn't have that profile. And the question is whether he, he has managed to enthusiasm enough people uh, so they will go and vote for him in the hopes that he will rise to the occasion. It has also not helped that the televised debates and so on have not exactly been the kind of a firecracker 
situations. They've been designed in a way that made uh, presidential debates, which are often very long and not always very interesting, even more boring. Uh, and that, of course, doesn't help when you're trying to pick up steam to go against the favored candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's also talk about Hemeti presidency when it comes to Iran's foreign policy. We already talked about a hardliner race, see also continuity in the system. But how do you think Iran's engagement with the West, relations with Europe, potentially with the United States, and negotiations on follow-on issues would um, would be different if someone like Hemeti? Well, there's only Hemeti left from the moderate camp right now. But if he ends up becoming the president. Well, I mean, in the same way that you could say that he would be more professional about his domestic politics, especially the economic policy, but he would still be kind of confronted with a lot of institutions that are not elected, are appointed and have their own interests. Uh, So the idea of a national interest is much more difficult to kind of focus and define. The same thing goes for his foreign policy. I mean, as I said before, there there is a baseline. There are certain things which are decided collectively in the Supreme National Security Council. So the president is one but one voice in that group, not an insignificant one. But for instance, on Yemen or Syria and so on, uh, I think the IRGC would take precedence in terms of who sets the general frame for that policy. But I think he would perhaps hopefully have a more professional team. And if he does, as he says, might even take Zarif back as foreign minister, then Iran would have a foreign minister that has a lot of respect abroad and who is very professional and therefore could kind of conduct the business of foreign policy in a way that would be helpful, irrespective of the constraints that Hemati has at home when it comes to foreign policy. If Raisi, for instance, instead goes for someone who is very kind of um, safely conservative rather than someone who is good at it, let's say someone like Saeed Jalili, who is one of his competitors at the moment, then it's going to be very difficult for Iran to conduct effective foreign policy abroad. Mm-hmm. And... Um you um you and i were talking before this show talking about how hemati i mean this is what a lot of people say is an unknown figure he doesn't have a lot of chance some reformists in the country that i speak to tell me that he doesn't have the chance to consolidate votes to get um, this sort of popular support that's needed to win against Raisi. But there's also the story of Khatami, for example, former president back in 97, the first time he got elected. And I remember that. I was a high school student in Iran. It was this famous slogan, everyone saying, we're going to write Khatami on the ballot and they're going to read Nateq, which was Nateq Anuri, his hardline rival. Talk about that election as we were discussing and if you see any parallels to Hemmati also being an unknown figure right now. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to something you mentioned before. I mean, this is not, these elections are not fair necessarily, and they're definitely not free in our sense of it, but they are competitive. And I think the intense campaign of, uh, you know, four to six weeks just before you have to cast your ballot is when they all have to kind of profile themselves and distinguish themselves from each other, especially if they're from the same camp. And that's where the, the surprise element comes in, because that's when the population gets a chance to see who they think would be the best candidate and vote for that candidate. And that's what the system cannot control fully yet. 
And that's what generates the surprises. And I mean, Khatami was in a sense, the clear cut example of that because he had one single opponent and that was supposedly the favored candidate of the Supreme Leader. And, and Khatami being the former head of the National Library was really a non-entity in every sense of the word when it comes to the cutthroat world of, of politics. And yet he won astoundingly with you know huge numbers and a huge turnout twice. So it shows you that it's not uh, a totally gamed system, even though it's not a level playing field. And so the question is whether Hemati is going to um, have the chance to experience something similar, to channel frustration and the anti-vote against Raisi, for instance, into a vote for himself. And if that's going to be enough to at least get him to a second round where the, the differences will become even more clear-cut. Mm-hmm. And if Hemati does win the presidency, something interesting has happened as far as dates here, because between Iran and the U.S. in the past four decades, we've always had these narrow windows of opportunity that would open and quickly shut when you had a moderate or a pro-diplomacy person on one side and the same on the other, and then they would soon, uh, they would overlap, but then soon one of them would end their term when you had uh, someone like Khatami, he coincided at some point with President Bush on this side. Then you had Obama coming into power when there was Mahmoud Ahmadinejad on the other side. But right now, because of Trump's single-term presidency, if Hemati does win, we're going to see an overlap of a one or potentially even two terms. So up to seven, eight years of a pro-diplomacy camp in Iran and someone like Joe Biden here on the U.S. side. How do you think this can change the direction of U.S.-Iran relations or tensions, as I would say, the past four decades and this this, this change of timing, just pure change of timing can, um, can change equa- the equations moving forward? It can, but I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that there is a huge inertia in politics, uh, especially in foreign policy. So this is, you know, this is something that usually is slow moving. And in the case of Iran and the US, they have institutionalized enmity for four decades. So if we look at it from the long view, the Obama, Obama's last four years were definitely an exception to a very ironclad rule uh, of always assuming that the other side is the worst thing there is on earth. And that also means that you have hardliners on both sides that are very much not only geared towards this, but this is, you know, this is staple food for them. This is a very simple way of dividing up the world map in terms of what you can expect. And they're very comfortable with that. And that's the the way they want to continue operating, so to speak. So even even the Biden administration needs to overcome a lot of institutional inertia in Congress more than anywhere else. And some of the the Biden camp people are themselves from the Hillary uh, Clinton camp, and they're actually much more hawkish on Iran than people give them credit for. So there's also been a a learning curve, in my opinion, on the Biden side in trying to unlearn some of the silliness that the Clinton camp were entertaining and realizing that what worked was actually Obama's second term. And that was a very different approach to Iran than the usual one. Uh, And the same goes, of course, on the Iranian side. Hemati or Raisi, to some degree, does not make any difference. It's about whether the system as a whole is willing to entertain the idea and pursue a line where they don't automatically assume that the United States is the worst thing on the planet and therefore can entertain talking to the United States about all kinds of things. That being said, 
Again, this is where the blob in DC comes in. The assumption seems to be sometimes in Europe and DC that once you have the JCPA in place, then you can just address a laundry list of complaints uh, to Iran and they are basically going to play ball. I don't think that's going to happen because the Iranians have complaints of their own and there are some things that they're doing that we don't like that they're not going to give up doing because they see it as part of their defensive posture. So these are things that rather than a compromise, you're going to basically just have to learn to live with each other. And that's even more difficult to sell politically, especially in the US Congress, which somehow magically always imagines that the rest of the world will jump and only ask how high when the United States says so. Mm-hmm. And this, again, we're talking about U.S. policy and potentially European policy. This brings me back also to your piece um, where you argue that if the hardliners succeed, potentially Ibrahim Raisi becomes president, um, that the United States and the European Union should carefully study their own role in Iran's big leap towards greater authoritarianism and resist doubling down on the very policy that helped bring about this hardline takeover in Iran. Talk about how you think they should resist and the kind of policy that the Europeans and the U.S. should be taking to avoid helping the hardliners in Iran and this leap towards greater authoritarianism, as you explain in your piece. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, this is in a sense about unlearning the way people think that politics work and more importantly, how they think the other side reacts to what you do. So... In the kind of hegemonic way, especially in the US, but also to some degree in Europe, the way foreign policy is conceived uh, when it comes to non-democratic states, states that they're considered to be either enemies or hostile, it's that, you know, if you whip them, they will eventually succumb. Uh, and so any kind, anything that is not whipping them is appeasement rather than seeing that as engagement and seeing that engagement that is actually being more critical of your supposed enemy, and in in fact making them more uncomfortable than if you were threatening them. Because if you threaten them, you just confirm their view of you, which means that they're quite comfortable. I mean, there's nothing that comforts the supreme leader and the hardliners as much as American warmongering, because that's exactly what they expect from the US. So it's rather that engagement is what makes them uncomfortable. And in this case, it's an feeling of uncomfortability that is good for everyone. That is, it's good for the Iranian people. In the long run, it's actually good for the system as well, because they will have to learn to deal with the world. And they have to learn that there are standards that if they break them, you have to pay. But if you kind of whip them from the very beginning, thinking you're going to make them uh, basically do what you want, it doesn't work. It hasn't worked so far, and it's not going to work in the future. Uh, So I think in that sense, uh, what we have to think about is if our way of punishing them helped the, the ultra-conservatives move their positions forward, continuing to punish them isn't going to weaken those conservative forces. It's going to help them continue isolate Iran and therefore strengthen their grip on power. It's rather uh, bringing Iran into the fold one way or another with warts and ho- everything that is going to Uh, alleviate the pressure on the Iranian population and also make it more difficult for the ultra-conservatives to argue that isolation is the only way forward. Um, You also argue in your piece that 
the hardliners and specifically the Revolutionary Guards have clearly benefited from Trump's sanctions and this maximum pressure, but they publicly blame all of Iran's economic ills on the Rouhani government. And we also see this echo even outside of the country among the opposition and the diaspora and exile, basically pinning the blame for Iran's economic problems almost exclusively on Rouhani while giving Trump a pass. Um, how much of this economic pressure and also this framing, both from the hardliners inside and also the exiles, and to some extent, extension, the Trump administration itself on the outside, how much of this framing do you think has impacted how people are viewing this election, the sense of apathy and frustration and a lack of hope for any kind of change? No, I mean, definitely it has. I mean, I think, first of all, as, as someone pointed out to me the other day when I was discussing this whole apathy aspect, I mean, I think there are a lot of people in Iran who are not necessarily apathetic. They're just busy trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they're, they, they're not apathetic. It's just that there are other things that are more important, everyday uh, struggle to, to survive. But I think it's important to have a structural view of this. It's not something we can just pin on Trump, for instance. I mean, what we're talking about is an economic system where sanctions for decades uh, make this economic system in various phases look like a hothouse, where one particular plant really likes it hot and everything else withers away. So no one is going to be seriously uh, argue, argue that the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, do not have a stake in the Iranian economy and that that stake could not have grown. It would have probably over time, but it's been accelerated in an unbelievable way with each wave of sanctions during Bush, particularly during Obama, because they were very effective in closing off Iran. And now again, during Trump, and those sanctions are still in place because Biden hasn't lifted them yet. Those sanctions makes it impossible almost for any domestic competitor to the Revolutionary Guards to basically conduct economic business. And it makes it by definition impossible from any outside actor to participate and therefore compete with the Revolutionary Guards. So it's not that American sanctions invented the economic clout of the Revolutionary Guards, but it has accelerated very much the process in which this grows and it grows at the expense of rest of society. Mm-hmm. And how much do you think that is impacting the turnout in this upcoming election? Well, I think what what affects the turnout is, of course, that people feel that there are no good alternatives, there are no good candidates. Uh, Hemati being a, kind of a substitute for what would have been a, someone with more name recognition, with greater political experience, track record, and so so on. And the fact that because the negotiations in Vienna have not yielded the result yet, what is the light at the end of the tunnel? At what point can you feel that whatever you do or don't do will have an impact that will eventually lead to a better economic situation? And at the moment, there is nothing because the Vienna negotiations have not yet reached a conclusion, uh, and because no one on the inside and none of the candidates except Hemati is, in a sense, talking about foreign policy, let alone talking about a better relationship with the rest of the world and the Western world in particular. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about the U.S. and Europe's role or their policies, but let's also talk about U.S. allies in the Middle East, Israel and mainly Arab states of the Persian Gulf. 
how do you see their role in Iran's isolation and basically this um, diplomatic turmoil with the West? And also, we've seen these recent events. There's a, a new prime minister in Israel. Iran's presidency is going to change. How do you see these developments um, potentially impacting Iran's relations with some of these uh, relations or tensions with some of these allies in the region? Well, I think, I mean, the, the, the crucial, most immediate neighbor that Iran has problem with is, is Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think to some degree, both have uh, played a very destructive game. And at the same time, both implicitly acknowledge that they're never going to get rid of the other party because they're literally neighbors. So in that sense, they're they're stuck with each other. And, and the sooner they can acknowledge that openly and realize what that means for how how little they're going to gain anything by uh, constantly pinching each other and how much they can gain if they start cooperating would be good for everyone, especially for the populations. But I think uh, Saudi Arabia, in a sense, have played a kind of zero-sum game where they fear that any kind of rapprochement between the United States and Iran, by definition, lessens their relevance in Washington and they're deadly scared of that scenario. Uh, that's also because they they live, in a sense, more on borrowed time in D.C. than Israel does. Israel has a totally different and much more culturally close and organic relationship with the United States, even though that is also subject to change, but not nearly as much or quickly as the one with Saudi Arabia can change. Um, The Israelis and the Iranians, I mean, Iran has kind of shot itself in the foot repeatedly by having this very, very hostile position on Israel. And it's not helping anyone and it's definitely not helping the Palestinians. Um, so I think there needs to be change there. But of course, that is going to be very difficult because, again, it's very comforting for hardliners in Iran when they fail with everything else, economic policy, social policy, etc., to at least be able to say this enmity and the, the, our supposed position of justice for the Palestinians is constant from 1978 onwards. Uh, Israel is also playing a zero-sum game to some degree because they're also afraid of what a new Iran-American relationship would mean for them. Uh, but they are, in my opinion, overplaying that much more uh, than they would need to because their relationship with the U.S. is much, much safer and securer than the one Saudi Arabia has with the United States. Mm-hmm. And finally, I want to go back to Iran's domestic scene again. If Ibrahim Raisi, the current head of judiciary, someone with a controversial past within the Islamic Republic, if he becomes the next president, how do you see that playing out in Iran's domestic policy versus someone like Hemati from the modern camp, a technocrat, an economist? How do you see that play out in Iran's overall domestic political scene, economy, and also this its impact on civil society? Well, I think, um, you know, civil society in Iran, which is always under huge pressure, uh, would hope that the Hemati presidency would give them some breathing space and they would perhaps feel at least that there is some hope by appealing to that president to get something done. One shouldn't expect miracles, again, because some of these things, especially in the last 10 years, the securitization of Iranian politics makes it difficult for a president to always get his his way, especially when it comes to the judiciary, because the judiciary, is, you know, the, the head of the judiciary, which Raisi is at the moment, uh, is is appointed by the supreme leader. So it's not really under the purview of the president. But the Hemati presidency would at least mean that they would have a sympathetic ear. While with Raisi, one would expect uh, that things are going to get even tougher uh, because the civil society organizations and generally the people who 
are more liberal in whatever sense you want to define it, uh, those are not the constituency of Ebrahim Raisi. Then when it comes to economic policy, it, I think it's a bit difficult because, frankly, I'm generally underwhelmed with all of these candidates in each election cycle when it comes to the economy. I mean, they have grand ideas, but very little concrete on how they're going to change things, especially when it comes to the poorer parts of society, which have been growing because of this maximum pressure, the COVID pandemic, and the general inherent corruption of, of Iranian economic system. Uh, I think Raisi is going to continue to to give the impression that he is going to uproot corruption, I don't think he's going to succeed particularly well because it is very much inside the system itself and he's never going to to contest that. Hemati is too weak to contest that, but at least he would be able to do it perhaps with less fear that it's part of his own group that is going to be implicated if they try and go after the corrupt circles, so to speak. All right, Rizbeth, thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you. That was Ruzbe Parsi, head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and director of the European Middle East Research Group. And thank you for joining the Iran podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast apps. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and clicking on support. Until next time. Goodbye.